Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi there. This is Greg Young. Next week, Tom and I will be presenting an all-new Bowery Boys Halloween special. Our 14th annual Ghost Stories podcast featuring four all-new stories of history and horror. So stay tuned. But what you're about to hear right now is something special. For the past couple years, we've also done a live cabaret version of our Ghost Story show at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. Now, for reasons related to the fact that it's the hellish year of 2020, we're unable to put on a live show this year. But we miss Joe's Pub so much. We miss being with our listeners in a cabaret setting with cocktails. So for today, we're presenting to you a live recording of our Halloween night show at Joe's Pub from last year with Andrew Austin on piano and vocalist Bessie D. Smith. Now, at the start of the show here, you'll just have to imagine one segment that's hard to translate into an audio-only experience, a segment involving Tom producing a bouquet of flowers out of his magician's sleeve. But that really happened. And this is just an edit of the complete show. If you'd like to hear the whole thing with all of the banter and more bad jokes and an incredible mid-show performance of a Metallica song performed by Bessie and Andrew... Join us at patreon.com slash Boys, where we'll be sharing the entire unedited concert. So enjoy. Welcome to the second annual Barry Boys Ghost Stories of Old New York Halloween Spectacular 
at Joe's Pub. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And we are the hosts of the Bowery Boys New York City History Podcast. Hello. Hello. Now, um, some of you might be like, what? the hell are we getting ourselves into? Let me explain. This is actually the live, a live version of something that we have done now for 13 years, which is an annual ghost story podcast. We just released one uh, a couple weeks ago called Haunted Houses of Old New York. So this is a, just a, 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 we're now starting a new tradition here. Yeah, that's right. Fortunately, that we don't do it alone, let's hear it for Bessie D. Smith on vocals and Andrew Austin on the piano. And that is, of course, not everyone, for we brought along a couple of our special friends, our groupies from the studio that longtime listeners will be familiar with. We have, of course, here Cheryl Crow. Uh, and, of course, who could forget here Bat Durbin? Um, and, uh, you know, all, 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 all their sort of decor here. We have a, a Patreon-only. Uh, we have Ichabod, our pumpkin here. Yeah, maybe uh, just some of you like aren't spice familiar it up with a little him. Bit. Um, we also have actually making her podcast debut this year, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Liza Spinelli. Yes. So. She really has her mother's legs. <laughs> so uh, a little tour of the Party City inventory there. But don't let these ha- this Halloween decor, the spooky pumpkin, don't let any of this fool you because we are in a safe space tonight with these four walls, okay? Totally, completely Absolutely safe. Um, well, I mean, I should say, for, for those of you who were here last year, you might remember that we actually did get haunted. By the ghost of Peter Stuyvesant, no less. Yes, but don't worry. I mean, we kind of took care of that. Uh, this year, we just want to put you at ease. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. Nothing. That doesn't sound like a setup. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it is true, actually, Greg. The only spirits here tonight are being poured in the back. <laughs> so some of you dressed up in costumes. It's so nice to see that you guys. Uh, I maybe you're going to the parade afterwards. But uh, any any? Oh, I see some nice costumes over there. Also, I think I see Lady, Lady Liberty over there. Hello. <laughs> so oh, we. Um, nice. I'm actually doing a kind of Vincent Price like 1958 like lounge look mm-hmm. uh, from his Fly period. If anyone knows that. And Tom, of course, is looking very magical this evening. Thank you, Greg. I hoped you'd notice. I'm doing the. Um, <laughs> Late 19th century vaudeville magician Howard Thurston. Yeah, I mean, actually... Any Howard Thurston fans? Any Thurston? Yeah. Uh, Thank you. It's a hard sell, but thanks. He actually did some magic, a magic trick uh, last year and almost took out the front row with this, like, crazy cane trick that he did. Um, I caned a couple people. Do you have anything up your sleeve tonight? Well, this year I thought I'd go for something a little bit safer and actually a little more theatrical, folks, because I looked around this, uh, this stage and I really thought it could use something a little, well, with a little more theatrical color. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You might be saying, first of all, the door is locked, you can't leave. You might be thinking, um, theatrical, yeah, it's a, it's a Bloomin' group. Blue Men Group. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> they don't get better, folks. <laughs> but now, ladies and gentlemen, who is... We are, it's time to get serious. Who is in the mood for a ghost story? Okay. Thank goodness you're in the right place. We're going to begin the show tonight with something that may be disturbing 
for some of you. And that is the idea of the unexpected guest. Oh no, how long are they staying? So you're like sitting at home and you hear a knock at the door or a chime of your doorbell and you're not expecting anyone on that day. You're sitting around in your pajamas or your underwear or whatever. You don't want to answer the door. It could be the Spectrum cable guy. It could be some person with a, a petition to sign. or It could be the Girl Scouts selling cookies. it could cookies. be the Girl Scouts, yes. But what if it is nobody at all? For the name of this story is... Knock, knock. Who's there? The ghost. The ghost who? The ghost who keeps knocking. (laughs) I now turn your attention to a very old and curious house that's still with us today, actually. It's at 136 Clinton Avenue in the vicinity of the Fort Greene, Clinton Hill neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Anyone live around there? I don't know. So this house is much older and quite unlike anything else in the neighborhood. It sits back from the street about 40 feet, and the whole yard is surrounded by an old iron gate. Now, this house was built in 1835, and it's in the Greek Revival style. So it's almost like a Greek temple or a southern-style plantation, which would seem really out of place in Brooklyn today. Yeah, it was, it was built, actually, when there were no other structures around it. So, in fact, back in the 1830s, before there was landfill and before there was all this different development, it would have actually been pretty close to the waterfront. And not just any waterfront. It would have been very close to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Yeah, so the Brooklyn Navy Yard was this massive shipyard that was first established in 1810. And it was from there that hundreds of military ships were built and maintained. And it certainly brought a new energy to the neighborhood. Think of all the sailors. Think of all the shipbuilders. Think of all the spirits. For the Navy Yard was built in an area of the Brooklyn waterfront called Wallabout Bay. And it's this body of water that has a most disturbing reputation. For during the Revolutionary War, the British imprisoned thousands of captive American soldiers and civilians within the holds of rotting and filthy prison ships. For years, the remains of human beings would wash up upon the shoreline here, disturbing discoveries along the sandy banks, the unfortunate victims of British cruelty. Now today, in Fort Greene, if you go to uh, uh, Fort Greene Park, there's actually a very spectacular monument to those who died aboard the prison ships. And this is called the Prison Ships Martyrs Monument, dedicated in the park in 1908. Okay. But hold on. What does any of that have to do with our little Greek revival house over on Clinton Avenue? Well, it may explain the cause of a particular supernatural event which occurred here at the house in December of 1878. Now, what you are about to hear is an unexplained phenomenon that appeared in all of the local newspapers and to this day remains an unsolved case with the Brooklyn Police Department. The occupants of the house in December of 1878 included a gentleman named Edward Smith his wife, and his two young daughters. 
Well, one early evening, there was a was heard a very hearty knock at the door of 136 Clinton Avenue. But when Mrs. Smith came down the stairs and she opened the door, she discovered that nobody was there. Strangely, this very same thing kept happening. It happened the following evening, and then the day after that, and then the day after that. This mysterious knocking. For two weeks, it actually grew more violent with each passing day, like a, like a hammering fist of a very large man. Hmm. I'm just going to suggest maybe it was just little trickster neighborhood children, but it sounds like... It was something much more powerful, had more force. Oh, yeah. I mean, much greater force, actually. Now, while the residents of 136 Clinton Avenue, well, they thought this was odd, they didn't really think that anything supernatural was responsible for the knocking. Not until the next strange phenomenon involving a newfangled doorbell that they had installed. And as you might be able to predict in these kinds of stories the doorbell soon began ringing seemingly of its own accord. Hmm. Well, you could, you know, you can explain away the knocking, but a doorbell, and that's a little trickier because there'd have to be somebody standing there pushing the button. Yeah, I mean, that would, you would think, right? But the doorbell kept ringing at the same time of the evening that the knocking had occurred, and it was much harder to ignore. Sometimes there would be both simultaneous knocking and ringing, as though somebody or something was frenzied and desperate to get inside. Sometimes the doorbell would be accompanied by a violent rattling of the door itself. It would violently shake as though someone were trying to tear it off. At other times, the doors and the windows on the side of the house, well, they began shuddering and rattling wildly, as if there was some sort of force that was about to just pull them off the building entirely. It's kind of like an earthquake, but quaking only a single building, and only in the evenings. At least it was punctual. It was very punctual. In fact, the presence would start its disturbing behavior around 5 p.m. in the early evening. And then it would repeatedly knock and ring and knock and ring and knock and ring until about midnight. Did the owner of the house, Edward Smith, did he try to do anything about this? Yeah, he he did try something, actually. He, one afternoon, sprinkled flour and ashes along the foot of the door in order to capture footprints of this mischievous culprit. However, after an evening of this constant and vigorous knocking and this hellish bell ringing, upon investigation... Edward discovered that the ash had gone undisturbed and that there were no footprints in front of the door. Well, three weeks of this ghostly torment went by, and Edward's wife urged her husband to seek out the help of spiritualists or mediums who might be able to discern what this entity was up to. Unfortunately, by the 1870s, there was no shortage of spiritualists or mediums in New York City. They were all around New York, but instead of a medium, Edward called the police. Mm. Upon arrival, the police captain actually told Smith, quote, Take my word for it. We will capture the ghosts if it has flesh and blood, and it's viable to moralize. But of course it wouldn't be. 
The captain and his detectives station themselves at night on watch with one officer at every door. Well, promptly at 5 p.m., again it came, the knocking and the rattling and the ringing. It all returned, but this time just stronger than ever. One officer even held the bell mechanism of the doorbell in his hand, tied the pieces together so it wouldn't ring. And yet, still, beyond any laws of physics and reason, the bell still rang. As the officers collected on the front porch, staring in confusion at the strange door, there suddenly came the terrible sound of shattering glass from inside the house. Everyone ran to the dining room to discover that a window had been smashed open and on the ground lay a brick which had been plucked from the alleyway. Now, in order for this brick to have smashed the window, it had to have been thrown with just an immense force. And yet, disregarding the rules of nature here, the brick sat right there under the window as though within the house itself, it had simply lost momentum and fallen to the floor. Well, due to extensive newspaper coverage, curiosity seekers from around the region would gather outside the house's iron gates to witness whatever this horrible disruption was. And eventually, spiritualists did arrive at the front door, offering up their services. Yet even these practitioners of the supernatural were unable to communicate or even identify the nature of this entity. But Mr. Smith, he was convinced of its identity. According to the New York Times, quote, Smith is now convinced that the invisible cause of all the phenomena is no less than a personage of his satanic majesty himself. And then finally, one evening, a terrifying evening of the worst knocking and the worst shaking, one that seemed like it would just simply tear the house from its foundations. After all of this, the spirit or the demon simply disappeared and was never heard from again. No explanation was ever settled upon for this for this behavior. But the old timers in the neighborhood, those who remembered the Brooklyn shoreline before the arrival of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, well, they had an idea of where this restless spirit might have come from. What was it? Just imagine the terrible suffering of the thousands of people who were starving in those prison ships and the hundreds who had succumbed to disease their bodies thrown overboard in the waters of Wallabout Bay. People forgot those terrible discoveries along the waterfront in the years after the Revolutionary War. But what if their restless spirits had remained here decades later, still in a futile struggle of escape? What if from beyond the grave, they simply yearned for the comforts of home? Hmm. Okay, so I have one really big question. Um, when we usually see that kind of a story in a movie or something, mm-hmm. like Poltergeist, 
the family usually moves away, <laughs> right? I mean, why did they stick around? Uh, it's like a nice house, right? I mean, look, rent is crazy in Brooklyn. I don't care if it is 1878 or 2019. Look, Tom, this place has a porch. Yeah, it also has ghosts who aren't paying rent. <laughs> well, I guess you could call this a rent destabilized apartment. <laughs> in that case, well... I'm going to take us to a very different spot in old New York. Uh, okay, well, where would that be? Well, and I do mean well. Greg, you don't need to walk very far from this very spot to, in- to explore an infamous murder that took place a little bit more than 200 years ago that plunged New York into terror. For the tale of this story is... The murder at Manhattan Well. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Bessie D. Smith. <laughs> Great. I, I. L- it's weird to say this, but I actually love this story. We've actually visited the well twice in our podcast. So, but can you remind us um, like when exactly does this story take place? So we're going back to 1799. Now, this well was a massive brick structure. It stood about eight feet off the ground. It was located over near today's Spring and Green Streets. Okay, well, Spring and Green, that is a a fairly swanky neighborhood today. Today, sure, yeah, but back in the day, back in 1799, then it was countryside up here. Um, It was just dotted by a few farmhouses. Remember, it had only been 16 years since the end of the Revolutionary War, and New York City was still located pretty far south of here. Up here, it was pretty desolate. Um, it was part of the, the marshy land that was known as Lispinard's Meadows, which were swampy during the summer and, well, pretty barren during the winter. It's the kind of place where you could get away with murder. And of course, today, there's like a Louis Vuitton up the block, pretty much. <laughs> But back in 1799, this was, this was just farmland and this well. Now, New York was rapidly growing, and it was attracting lots of young people from all over who were in search of jobs, and when they got here, they needed a place to stay. So they, many of them moved into boarding houses. I want to direct our attention to one particular boarding house uh, that became quite infamous in 1799. It was located at Franklin and Greenwich Streets over in today's Tribeca neighborhood. Now, this was run by a a woman named Catherine Ring and her husband, Elias. They They were a Mormon couple. In addition to running this boarding house, Catherine also operated a millinery, a hat shop, um, in the boarding house. Now, some of the tenants at the boarding house also worked for Catherine in her shop, including her 22-year-old cousin, Elma Sands. Elma was fragile and a pretty young woman. She was often sick. There's another tenant we should talk about. Um, He was a strapping young man named Levi Weeks. Levi was a carpenter, and he lived in a room upstairs with his young apprentice. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. 
Upstairs with his apprentice? Back in the day, it was okay and normal to um, actually, you know, for an apprentice to live with his mentor. In the case of Levi, also to share the same bed. Well, there... <laughs> okay, so there's definitely some laws against that sort of thing today. Uh, there are laws today against many of the things that happened here, Greg. For, in December of 1799, Levi and Alma, well, they'd fallen in love and, you know, both living in the same boarding house, they, they became secretly engaged to get married. Except it wasn't a huge secret because Alma had already told both Catherine and another tenant named Hope. And as we know, news does spread quickly in the millinery. And really, many of the others knew too, um, as they'd been hearing a lot of bumps in the nights. Levi and Alma had been sleeping together for months. Like, so with Levi's apprentice, <laughs> how big was this situation? How big was this bed? Alma would go, no, Levi would go down the hall to Alma's room and bump there. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, they were secretly planning to get married. So, uh, which brings us to the night of Sunday, December 22nd, 19, 1799. That night, Levi had come home from work, um, and Alma was already at home preparing for what promised to be a most unforgettable evening. Tonight, she had told Catherine, tonight they planned to, to board a sleigh, head off into the snow, and get married. Unfortunately, Alma had been kind of sick, um, and so Catherine had told her, look, you have, a, you have a nasty cold. Go next door to the neighbors and borrow a muff so that you can stay nice and warm on that sled. Alma ran off to get it, and... Catherine couldn't quite shake the feeling that Alma was acting kind of odd that night. She was probably just nervous, so Catherine shrugged it off and she went back upstairs. And a few minutes later, she heard the door downstairs pull shut. The young couple must be, must be off on their adventure, she thought. I mean, were they, I assume they were off to get married. They were headed to a church? I wish they had been. Um, it seems that Levi had other plans. This much we do know. Elma Sands would never return to the boarding house alive. I'm going to try to reconstruct what happened from the court testimony that came out later. Several witnesses would say that the night of her disappearance, um, they saw Elma on a sleigh with a man. That night around six or seven, it was already dark outside, and uh, an elderly woman had fallen down and hurt herself. Well... Alma got out of the sleigh to see if she needed any help, and the man who was back in the sleigh yelled out after her, hurry up, come on, get back in the sled, we're in a hurry. A little while later, around 8.15 or 8.30, um, up around the well near today's Spring Street, some of the residents in nearby homes had already gone to sleep. All was silent and dark when they heard somebody screaming, Lord, help me, save me. They raced to their windows to look out and see what was going on, and they saw someone standing at the Manhattan well, bending over it. He or she was, seemed to be looking inside. About an hour and a half later, around 10 o'clock at night, Levi knocked on the door of the boarding house. His apprentice let him in, and Catherine came downstairs to see what was going on. She thought, she had thought that they had, you know, that Levi and Alma had just gotten married. So she said, where's Alma? And Levi said, I don't know, why should I know? The next morning, everybody at the boarding house was pretty fearful when Alma didn't come downstairs for breakfast, and especially anxious when they realized she never came home that night. 
Meanwhile, back at the well, well, the neighbors headed outside to inspect the area where they'd heard that commotion the night before. They noticed that there was a single track in the snow. Only one sled had passed by during the night. There's a young man who lived nearby, and he noticed that one of the boards that was usually on top of the well that was there to keep it from freezing was missing. He looked inside the well, and he spotted a muff. Now, over the next few days, the word would get around town uh, that Elma had disappeared. Newspapers ran de- detailed descriptions of Elma, right down to what she was wearing the night that she disappeared. That news reached the man who had found the muff. Finally, on, on January 2nd, 10 days after she went missing, a group of neighbors uh, and, with local authorities, tipped off by that man who found that muff, headed out to the well with a very long pole. They fished around until they came upon the body of Elma Sands. They struggled on that cold winter afternoon to to get her, but finally they pulled her up and wrapped her lifeless body in a blanket and carted her back to the boarding house. She had been dead for for more than a week, and, and yet you could still see the signs of strangulation on her neck. Somebody had strangled her and thrown her down the well. They carted her back through the snow to the boarding house and put her on display for all to see. On display, like why would they? Why would they do that? Well, they they put her on display to show to New York what had happened and that somebody was trying to get away with murder. And so, did the authorities actually go and press charges against Levi? Oh yeah. In fact, you know, his uh, they held a they held a trial down at the old federal hall. Um, it was a complete sensation. It was fully documented, and today you can still read all the exchanges from that trial. Levi's alibi rested upon his brother, who was named Ezra Weeks, and he was, he was a very well-respected architect. They, they often worked on construction projects together, and Levi claimed that he had spent the entire evening dining and working together with his brother at his brother's house. It also helped that his brother had snagged the best legal defense team in New York, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. <laughs> Working together, folks. In their defense, Hamilton and Burr would make poor Alma out to be both promiscuous and unstable, even suicidal. She must have done this to herself. And anyhow, you know, they maintained that there was no hard evidence that actually linked Levi to this murder, even though multiple witnesses testified that they saw him on the sled with Alma. I mean, and what about the affair? The engagement, all of this. Oh, well, the, the judge actually wouldn't let the jury hear any of the information about the alleged engagement. Although all of those allegations were published widely in the newspapers and pamphlets that were distributed all over town. Hundreds of people packed the courtroom and jammed into the streets and were amazed, disbelief, furious when the jury came back with their verdict, not guilty. So then stories would persist about strange noises that seemed to come from inside or around that old well. Of course, 
The city would grow up around the well. Streets would be graded, laid out. Land would be carted up, you know, to fill in that old meadow. The only reminder of the streams and of the Lisp Lispinard's meadows up around here would be of the, the naming of the nearest street to the well, Spring Street. The old well, may, meanwhile, it of course didn't budge. It wound up being buried with, with a home built over it. The neighborhood would become industrial in the 20th century, and in the 1950s, that home would become a restaurant. A restaurant that would need a wine cellar. So, they dug it out, and they came upon this massive old well. It was then that the cries began. Late at night, there was banging and cries. Cries always coming from the basement of this restaurant. Now, the news spread to nearby residents and neighborhood children. If you headed down the dark alleyway behind the restaurant, you could, you could hear the sounds of a woman crying. There, there were even multiple reports of residents seeing an actual ghost, a, a young woman whose clothing was always mossy or hanging with weeds. Had they disrupted something when they dug out that cellar? Had, maybe it was the moving around of the dirt, unsettled something or, or someone in the well? And so, present day, what's on that spot today? Well, believe it or not, the well is still there today. If you head to 129 Spring Street today, the restaurant was replaced by the Cause Clothing Shop. <laughs> head inside, down the staircase, and you'll see the well right there. <laughs> I'm not making that up. <laughs> no. It's crazy. Shoppers just push by it. Uh, they bump into it. Never give it a second thought. They may not. But apparently, the nighttime security team does. You know, every time I've gone there to check in on that well, I ask the clerk downstairs if they know the story of the well. And every time, they kind of give me this confused look. Like, you know, it's a long story, I say. But if you ever hear any strange noises at night, you're not imagining it. But don't be scared. Just say good night. To Elma. Well, can, can we just go back a little bit to that part where you dropped a couple, you know, big names there? Mm. Uh, why were Hamilton and Burr? Why were they here defending that guy? I mean, why? Why were they involved? Why would they do this? All right, well, this is a rather long and interesting story that we don't have time to get into tonight, but let's just say that Burr had business reasons for taking that job. This well was actually part of a, of a water company that he had helped found called the Manhattan Company. The well had actually been built by Ezra Weeks, Levi's brother. And the Manhattan Company itself was actually kind of a ruse. Yes, it was a water company, but really they were mostly concerned with its ability to charter a bank. A bank that would be called the Bank of the Manhattan Company, which over time would become the, the Chase, Chase Manhattan, Manhattan bank. bank. So I guess at least you could say that Burr was heavily invested in this case. <laughs> but why would... Hamilton be involved? 
Well, Hamilton thought that Levi had a pretty good alibi. After all, no one else was at the well where it happened. The well where it happened. The well where it happened. Silence. Silence. (laughs) But we're the public. (laughs) When we return, three more live ghost stories at Joe's Pub. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tom, we're, we're now going to go from Metallica mm-hmm. to a metallic woman. Because I'm going to take us out to Liberty Island, which you might think is the least frightening place in the world. Or is it? So every day, thousands of tourists flock to the island to visit the 305-foot-tall Lady Libs, which was unveiled in October of 1886. But what about the island itself? The place that we call Liberty Island today was originally referred to as Bedloe's Island. Now, long before the Green Lady arrived, the island was home to a military fort, Shaped like an 11-point star, the fort was named Fort Wood and was completed in 1811. The Statue of Liberty actually sits atop the filled-in walls of the old Fort Wood. And it's those walls that we'll be focusing on for our story. Or more precisely, the jagged rocky shores just outside these walls. For the name of this story is The Island of the Cursed Treasure. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Are you saying, Greg, that our beloved Lady Liberty is standing upon a foundation of Horrors? Horrors? Well, this, 
This will be you. This will be up to you to decide. But first, I'm going to tell you about a famous New Yorker and a person that I bet most of you didn't even realize was a New Yorker, and that would be Captain William Kidd, the famous Captain Kidd. Arg! Believe it or not, Kidd lived for many years in New York City on Pearl Street. Believe it or not, which is very appropriate. For a pirate who probably stole a lot of pearls in his life. Yes, he, we did an entire episode on the life of Captain Kidd a couple years ago. He was actually a really well-respected member, well, pretty well-respected member of New York society back in the old days. He even rented a pew at Trinity Church. And of course, he was also, not surprisingly, one of the 17th century's most notorious figures. He was accused of piracy found guilty and hanged in London in the spring of 1701. But after his death, word spread quickly that Captain Kidd had left a vast fortune and buried it somewhere along the eastern seaboard. Wow. So we don't just have a treasure in this story, but we have a buried treasure. Aye, you matey. (laughs) (laughs) And many people surmised that Kidd must have buried the treasure around the, vic- the vicinity of New York itself. Oh, well, that would make sense, that he would bury it someplace where he could keep his pirate's eye on it. Hmm. And if you had, say, a telescope, and you were looking out at the water from the site of his old house on Pearl Street, one would have seen Bedloe's Island. Now, let's jump forward in our story here 120 years to the 1820s and to the new fortification that I just mentioned that had just been built on the island, Fort Wood. The one that looks like the 11-point star. Yes, that one. So here at the fort was stationed an officer named Sergeant Gibbs, who was a man of some respectability. One day, a young recruit named Carpenter came up to him this carpenter divulged a certain notion that he had that the famous fortune of Captain Kidd must be buried somewhere on that very island and perhaps underneath their feet. Now, Gibbs had heard this rumor himself, and so the pair devised a plan. But first, they needed to speak to someone who might be able to channel the secrets of the dead. Like a fortune teller or some sort of mystic? Yes, like a fortune teller. So they took the ferry over to the city of New York and found themselves a mysterious old fortune teller who lived along the waterfront, someone known to occasionally acquaint themselves with the matters of the occults. She told the officers, I sense that there's a flat rock somewhere around Bedloe's Island. Yes, actually, there was. They were both familiar with this flat rock. It was on the north side of the island, accessible only by foot when there was a low tide. Oh, so it was hidden from sight most of the time. Of course, and it would be a natural place for a smart sea captain to hide a treasure. But the fortune teller warned them that they must wait for the full moon and to locate the treasure, they must bring with them a witch-hazel divining rod. Uh, one of those Y-shaped 
sticks like that one that you pass over the ground until you get some sort of vibration. And all the better to divine the locations of secret objects under the ground. So finally, the night of the full moon arrives, and the night that Gibbs and Carpenter would finally search for the treasure. Nothing was heard but the sound of the waves crashing against the shore and a brisk and frosty wind, sounds playing tricks off the many corners of the eleven-sided fort. Only torchlight and the full moon reflecting down upon the water, and maybe the barest lights from the city across the harbor. Well, at midnight, the two men snuck out of their barracks. They climbed over the wall, armed with a divining rod, a shovel, and a single lantern. They inspected the dark shoreline and headed to that large, flat rock. Thankfully, because the tide was now low, they could see the rock jutting out of the black waters. They guided their rod over the ground and around the shoreline near the rock, looking for some kind of a a spiritual sign as to the location of the treasure. Suddenly, the rod dropped to the ground as if forced by an invisible hand. This was it. By the light of the lantern, the men pulled aside debris from the shoreline and started digging through the sand. The two men took turns, overturning the ground, opening a a black hole into the earth. They continued to dig two feet, three feet, four feet. They were now both standing waist deep in the hole, one man shoveling while the other man was using his hands. Another five feet or so passed before, clink, their shovel hit the side of something solid. And of course, they dug all around it, and sure enough, this was a chest. But there was also something else there as well. Buried next to the treasure chest was a skeleton, its bones entangled with roots and worms. They realized that the body was probably that of a pirate, an associate of Captain Kidd. As legend has it, pirates, when they would bury their treasures, would also kill one or two of their men to serve as guards. Doomed men eternally guarding the treasure of the man who had murdered them. The men lifted the chest from the hole, climbing out themselves, breathless to see what was inside of it. Riches pilfered from king's gold, diamond necklaces, bejeweled crowns, When all of a sudden, there was a giant flash, a flash of white light, and everything went white. They felt this hot pressure against their faces, and when they opened their eyes, they both saw an unearthly figure, sort of man, but more actually, a demon who rose up from the hole and hovered above the ground, billowing sulfuric fire. Gibbs let out a blood-curling scream. To him, the beast appeared as a vulgar monstrosity with horns and wings off shoulders. Carpenter's description was quite different. He saw a glowing red wraith, ghostly, its appendages like the tentacles of an octopus. 
Gibbs promptly passed out on the sand, and Carpenter ran the other direction in absolute fright. But where could he run, trapped as he was on Bedloe's Island? The two men were eventually captured, of course, and could no longer lie about their attempts at digging for buried treasure here. They told the sergeant-at-arms what had happened and that they were sure at what they had seen. It was not a ghost, but it was something diabolical. Yet when the sergeant and the guards and the two men went back to the hole, the monster, the skeleton, and the chest had all vanished. So was it all an illusion? Did anybody ever find the treasure out on the island? No, actually, believe it or not, this legend still persists to this day, and it hasn't even stopped people from from trying to seek it out. People sometimes still wander around the north side of Liberty Island looking for a certain flat rock. I would personally suggest that if you do go out to Liberty Island on the night of a full moon and on the night of a low tide, please just leave it alone. Well, fortunately, I don't think that tourists are allowed out at Liberty Island at night. Maybe that's why. Or maybe there is a simpler explanation for why nobody has located the treasure today. Well, who else could have taken the treasure? I mean, who could possibly wander around the island today wearing a crown? Hmm. I guess we'll never know. Oh. Oh, my goodness, Tom. All right, moving on, actually. Um, We're going to go from the late 20th century, apparently, back to the early 20th century, shall we? I'm going to take us from the Liberty to the Palace. Okay, so it sounds like we're pivoting to a show ghost. (laughs) Not just one ghost, Greg, but a whole cast of them. It seems that the Palace Theater up at 47th and Broadway just can't push their ghosts off the stage. Or in the case of its most famous ghost, out the stage door. For the name of my story is Still Home at the Palace. Now, I'd like to start our story on October 16th, 1951. 1951. Now, that's four decades after the palace first opened its doors. By 1951, the palace had been through a lot. It had gone from being the toast of the vaudeville circuits to just showing second-rate movies to stay open. But that October night in 1951, the palace was attempting the unthinkable. They were actually attempting to resurrect vaudeville to bring back a form of entertainment that had been written off as dead for decades. And tonight they had enlisted a major Hollywood star to help them do it. She was 29 years old. She was, uh, she'd signed on for an eight-week contract of two performances a day. 
She was a movie star, a recording star, and she just returned to the States from a sold-out tour in England. Someday I'll wish upon a star And wake up where the clouds are far Behind me Above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find me. Imagine for a second, Judy Garland was 29 years old in 1951. The ads show show a young woman who barely looks older than Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, a movie that had only been released 12 years earlier. So, I don't know who's seen Judy. I just saw it a, a few days ago. And uh, from what I recall, she was already kind of struggling um, by this time when she was Dorothy. So, I can imagine that by 1955, things had gotten kind of almost completely chaotic with her. Well, by 1951, yes. Yeah. She had struggled with depression, with her self-image. Um, she was on her second marriage. She'd had a nervous breakdown, attempted suicide, gone through rehab. Yes. But she had also achieved a lot, too. Consider this. Between The Wizard of Oz in 1939 and this performance in 1951, she'd given birth to a daughter, Liza. Let's hear it for Liza. She'd been in more than 20 films. You know, her fans actually loved her more because she did struggle. And now in 1951, the physical stress of two daily performances at the palace... Well, that really wouldn't help. That schedule would lead to some serious problems for Judy and also for other performers who'd be on the stage. So, the, so already this story has a lot of drama, a lot of melodrama. Can, but can we actually talk a little bit about the theater itself? So like, oh. when did it open, for instance? Well, sure. The Palace Theater opened on March 24th, 1913 as a vaudeville house. If you were in vaudeville, you'd made it when you played the palace. We're talking about singers and dancers and acrobats, performers like Harry Houdini, the Marx Brothers, Fred Astaire, Fanny Bryce, and many others. That's, I mean, that, that's great, but by the late 20s, like the 1920s, this vaudeville and Broadway was actually having a hard time because, of course, with the advent of the movies. Yes, and then the Depression. So they just kept adding more shows every day. So by the, by the early 30s and the depths of the Depression, performers had to do their act four times a day, obviously risking exhaustion. On August 17, 1935, the theater was, was half full for the second show of the day. It was 4.30 in the afternoon, and there was an acrobatic troupe on stage called the Four Casting Pearls. Now, their act involved casting, or swinging off of bars that had been mounted to the rafters, and then flying through the air. The, the climax of that act was called the Death Loop, during which one of the acrobats, a 31-year-old named Louis Bossolina, would swing high off of his bar, do a double somersault, and then catch the hands of one of his partners. It was their big finale, and he did it four times a day. On this August afternoon, however, Lewis flipped off the high bar, did his famous double somersault, reached for the hands of his partner, and missed. 
Before an audience of 800 people, Louis plunged down to the stage at the palace. The crowd shrieked, and the palace dropped the curtain. Did he live? He, yeah, he barely survived. He suffered critical injuries, and the palace was eager to kill the story. But he'd be back. Meanwhile, the palace had other problems. Um, by this time, 1935, vaudeville was dead. And the palace was forced to show movies full-time, and not even good movies. Which brings us then back up to 1951, and the palace's last-ditch efforts to resurrect vaudeville and save themselves. And, and for that, they needed Judy Garland to do it. Vaudeville in 1951, mm-hmm. and Judy was part of a vaudeville show. Yeah, she was the second half of the show. That opening night, she stood nervously in the wings. She was dressed entirely in black. She'd chosen that, you know, to minimize the fact that she'd been struggling with her weight. But from the moment that she stepped out onto the footlights and belted out a huge hello, she had her audience with her. And I just assume that she was a huge hit. <laughs> 5,000 fans jammed into the streets around the Palace Theater on opening night. She actually struggled to get out. She, she had signed for eight weeks. She'd do 19. 800,000 people would see her perform at the Palace. But she pushed herself so hard that on the night of Sunday, November 11th, 1951, only four weeks into that engagement, during her act, Judy Garland collapsed on stage. Variety claimed that it was due to her dieting that, you know, combined with the physical stress of doing two shows a day, well, it just brought on the collapse. Others speculated that it had been caused by other habits. She was out for five days, um, and the palace knew that they had to do something to help her out, so they built her a special kind of escape of sorts, a stage door that allowed her to quickly pass to a waiting car out on 47th Street to escape the crowds. But even with that, she had a hard time getting out of the palace. Judy's show had been a big hit, it's true, although it wouldn't be big enough to save the palace. And by by the late 1950s, it switched back to movies full-time and then fell into disrepair for many years. There had to be something better than this. And indeed, something unexpected happened in 1965, when the Nederlanders bought the theater, restored it, and reopened it with a smash hit called Sweet Charity. By the time that Charity closed in 1966, the palace had been through a lot. It had been through stardom, tragedies, accidents, and now rebirth. And the same could be said for Judy Garland. Judy Garland, to whom the palace would turn again in 1967, when they would try one more time to resurrect vaudeville. Now, 16 years had passed since her first palace run. During those 16 years, she'd filmed A Star is Born, she'd made five other films, she'd done a lot of TV, she'd sold out Carnegie Hall, but she'd also pretty much remained addicted to alcohol and prescription drugs. She'd been, she'd been married two more times, and she now found herself financially strapped. She owed hundreds of thousands of dollars to the IRS. She was now 45 years old, and she returned to the palace for another sold-out engagement. This one was called Judy Garland at Home at the Palace. 
On July 31st, 1967, she entered through the back of the house in a sequined black pantsuit. She now looked fragile. She, she only weighed 96 pounds. But she bounced down the aisle, shaking hands of all of her fans as they went wild. She took the stage, tears in her eyes, and told the crowd, it's so good to be home. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. We're gonna chase all your cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. We're headed for the judgment day. On June 22nd, 1969, Judy's fifth husband, Mickey Deans, found her dead in the bathroom of their rented apartment in London. The cause was a gradual overdose of barbiturates. She hadn't committed suicide. She had just slowly and accidentally overdosed. She was 47. It is really interesting, though, that like throughout her whole career, she kept coming back to this place. She kept coming back to the palace. Yeah, she was so at home at the palace that some say she never left. And apparently, she's not alone. The only problem is that sometimes these lingering spirits can actually get in the way of what's actually happening on stage. Take, for example, the, the experience of Andrew McArdle, um, who was appearing in Beauty and the Beast at the palace in 1999. She was standing center stage when she looked out, glanced down into the pit, and she spotted a female cellist who was, well, she was looking back up at her, and the only thing is she was dressed entirely in a white gown, and she was glowing. Could she have played for some other act a long time ago? Now, many performers have looked down, they've looked up in the balcony, and they've noticed children playing around, when, of course, there are no children up there. One of the regulars is a little boy who likes to roll his trucks back and forth. And there's also a little girl who lifts herself to look over the railing. She's watching somebody, but who is she watching? And then, of course, don't forget our famous casting, Pearl, from the 1930s. Starting in the 60s, stagehands would witness a man dressed in white swinging high above the stage when there was nobody there. Every time that he was spotted, he would, he would let out a scream while vanishing. Now, the crew, when they were finally shown that photo of Bossalina, would confirm that, yes, that's the man they saw. But... Obviously, the most famous of the palace spirits, of course, is the young woman whose, whose presence is still felt uh, hanging around the stage and near that stage door that had been built for her back in the 1950s. Is she, is she peering out anxious to leave, or is she ready for her fans' embrace? It seems that nearly 70 years after her palace debut, Judy is still at home at the palace.
birds fly beyond the rainbow. By the way, can I give us a quick little update on what's going on up at the Palace Theater? Um, has anyone been up there recently to 47th and Broadway to see what's going on? Thank you. Um, the palace's interior, we should note, is landmarked, but not the exterior, uh, which is why it's always tricky to find the palace. It's covered in billboards and things. However, um, they, they're adding a 46-floor tower above it, and um, they're actually adding 500,000 square feet of new retail and restaurant space around it. Yeah, it's, oh. um, it's still in there. You can actually see the palace. So there's 47. I, I, I just, it's great because what Times Square it needs is more chain restaurants, <laughs> and that would be a fabulous place. But like, so what I don't get is where is the theater in all of this? That's the best part. In order to make space for all of that new prime retail and restaurant space, they're elevating the palace 30 feet. They're actually lifting it up 30 feet. It's an amazing thing. Even the stage door. <laughs> well, this won't be a problem for ghosts, I assume. Um, oh, by the way, do you know who really appreciated that story? Who's that? Well, I mean, we all appreciated that story, of course, but so did Liza Spinelli. <laughs> Liza Spinelli, ladies and gentlemen. You know, she, she actually appeared at the palace in that, in that piece by Candor and Webb. No. Oh, my God. No, that actually, that was Kiss of the Spite. No, nope, no, nope. no. Don't stop it. Stop it. Moving on, moving on. En enough, well, n enough puns for the night, but there's been a lot, haven't they? There will haven't be there more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, well, actually, we do need to confess that we actually fibbed a little earlier in the show about this being like a totally safe space. That's right, because for our fifth and final show, ladies and uh, fifth and final story, it's about another haunted theater, ladies and gentlemen, but um, <laughs> this one's a little closer to where we all are right now. So buckle your seatbelts, or perhaps order a final drink, because the name of this story is The, the Ghosts, Ghosts of, of the, the Public, public Theater. theater. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You said this? <laughs> this oh, theater? Yeah, we, we yeah. This theater's fine. haunted. Yeah. We didn't talk about that. That's not in the Look, it's fine. It's fine. Look, just just relax. Okay. Everything'll be fine. We're it's pretty sure everything'll be fine. Okay. So, needless to say, we have clearly been uh, tempting fate by having a ghost story show performance in an actual haunted space. But to be fair, we were actually only told about these stories last year after the show. Yeah. So this is a true story. Um, not that the others haven't been, but listen. <laughs> this, one is, this one's really, really true. Near the end of our show last year, um, a note was passed to us 
uh, a note from a mysterious gentleman mm-hmm. uh, who asked us to meet him after the show upstairs in the library bar. In fact, Tom, because I knew I would, we were coming here tonight, I actually brought the note. I have it right oh. here. Oh. Yeah. Over right there. It's still, this, this, it was crazy. It was a year ago today that this happened. It was, yeah. And it, it gives me chills to think about it because we were delirious after the show, uh, kind of freaked out. Yeah, we were also completely intrigued. Also completely intrigued. So after ordering a round of stiff martinis, um, we settled down, and this gentleman who was very impeccably dressed in a cravat and very fine cufflinks, we, well, he proceeded to tell us all about the strange occurrences that have taken place right here. But I think we need to back up for a second, because you, dear audience, are not just sitting here in Joe's Pub. You know, at the public theater. You're also in one of the most historic buildings in Lower Manhattan, the former Astor Library. So this building is named, in fact, for John Jacob Astor, one of the wealthiest men to ever live in New York City. And near the end of his life, he wanted to leave a large sum of money for the creation of a library. He died in 1848. And this library would be open six years later. Among the members of the original board of directors was a name that you might be familiar with, Washington Irving, the famous author who was responsible for, you know, stories such as The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Not only did the Astor Library provide a home to the books of Washington Irving, it may very well have also been a home to his ghost. And he wasn't the only ghost wandering this special place. Special? How is it special? It was special as the Astor Library was a privately owned public library in a space that would later hold a public theater. Got it. Now, the library was open to anyone, although you couldn't actually borrow books. At the beginning, there wasn't even a card catalog to look up the books. No, But, fortunately, back then, the Astor Library had a brilliant head librarian, a man named Joseph Green Cogswell. And not only was he good at finding books, but he also checked out a few visitors who were, shall we say, overdue. I told you they weren't over. (laughs) Now, the following is a story that was told to us by that mysterious gentleman last year in Mm -hmm. the library bar. The story takes place in 1860. Now, Mr. Cogswell lived and worked in the library. So quite naturally, he was often up late at night. He liked being alone in that vast room with its thousands of books. So it was around 11 p.m. And Cogswell was returning some books to a particular shelf. But as he neared his destination, he spotted in an alcove the figure of a man, a very well-dressed gentleman, simply staring up and admiring a a stack of books. As Cogswell moved closer, he could just make out the contours of the man's face, and this man looked very familiar. He immediately recognized him as a local doctor named Post, a doctor of some acclaim and very popular with his patients. He was a physician of great skill, intelligence. He was also a man who had died six weeks before. Now, you have to be unflappable to be a librarian. 
So Cogswell approached Dr. Post and declared, you seldom, if ever, visited the library while living. Why do you trouble me now when you're dead? Dead? At that, the grim spirit turned to the librarian and promptly vanished. The very next evening, Cogswell was again strolling through the stacks. He'd convinced himself that that had just been some sort of hallucination. Granted, a very, very vivid hallucination. So he's reshelving books late one evening. And again, he sees the doctor just listlessly staring up into a tower of books. Cogswell once again approached the spirit. Again, I ask you why you, who never visited the library while living, trouble it now when dead. And again, the ghost, appearing frightened, vanished into the ether. Well, this is absolutely outrageous, thought Cogswell. Why was this spirit haunting the same spot night after night? What was he in search of? And with that, Cogswell turned his attention to the particular row of books that this spirit kept coming back to. It was a row of books devoted to the study of demonology, witchcraft, magic, and spiritualism. Some of these books were already hundreds of years old in 1860 and had such titles as Kern's Magicon, Glanville on Witches and Apparitions, and Bodiah's Demonomania. A chill ran down Cogswell's spine. Could it be that the ghost of the doctor was actually searching for a book to bring him back from the dead? Well, the third evening came, and Cogswell was once again in the stacks at 11 p.m., and once again he saw the ghost. Only this time the doctor was reaching for one of the books. Cogswell shouted at the ghost, This is the third time I've seen you. Tell me if any of these books bothers you and I'll have them removed immediately. And with this threat, or perhaps promise, the ghost turned toward the doctor, looked him in the eyes, and then disappeared into thin air. And Dr. Post never came back to the library. Now this story got around town very quickly, and Cogswell even became a minor celebrity. Curiosity seekers would visit the library and point out Mr. Cogswell. There he is, they shouted. There he is. There he is. Just joking. Just joking. I mean, it's here in this, yeah. you never know. But seriously, the ghosts actually did wonders for the library's attendance. <laughs> So many visitors came to use the library after that that newspapers accused other institutions of fabricating their own ghost stories to get people into the door, which is a good idea, actually. (laughs) Now, three decades later, in 1895, the Astor Library's collection would be consolidated with a few others and a trust, and it officially became the New York Public Library. This building here remained a part of that library system, the new New York Public Library system, until the main branch of the NYPL was opened at 42nd and 5th in 1911. In, however, by 1965, this old building was empty and it was slated to be demolished. But luckily, Joseph Papp and the city of New York came to the rescue. It became, this is incredible, 
It became the first building in the city to ever be designated a landmark in the last week of October of 1965. The first. Then, a few months later, Joseph Papp of the New York's of the New York Shakespeare Festival announced that he would be moving into the building and creating a new theater company named the Public Theater. After extensive renovations, the venue opened to the public in 1967 with its first show, Hair. When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter This place has been a premier institution for the performing arts since 1967. 21 years later, in 1998, the public opened this very space, Joe's Pub, for live musical and podcast performances. (laughs) (laughs) However, despite the fact that it has been more than 100 years since this place was a library, it's, it's said that some figures from the old library days still check in. And not just any old figure, but the president of the board of trustees himself, Washington Irving. Just a few months after seeing the spirit of Dr. Post, the librarian, Cogswell, was visited by the spirit of Washington Irving, who had died just a year before in 1859. Cogswell was quite surprised to see his old friend and approached the spirit of Irving. Irving turned to Cogswell and explained that he should not be disturbed, that he was only there doing some research. What was he working on? (laughs) Well, anyway, the ghost promised that once he was done, he would no longer trouble the Astor Library. And so Cogswell let him be, and true to his word, once he had finished the ghost of Washington Irving disappeared. That's right. And all of that was told to us by this mysterious gentleman in the library bar upstairs, the man who sent us that note. It said, Dear gentlemen, please grant me the favor of your company midnight upstairs at the library. I have a pressing concern. And then he signed it, his initials, uh, W.I. (laughs) W.I. Walter Isaacson, William Ing, Washington Irving. What was that? What was that? What's that noise? I think it's coming from Ichabod, the pumpkin. Just kidding. I'm the ghost of Washington Irving, and I'm still here, pumpkin. Have a great New York week. Whether Whether you you live live here here or or not. I put a spell on you Because you're mine 
You better stop the things you do. C.D. Smith and Andrew Austin. To our amazing director, Sarah Rademacher, and to our wonderful assistant, Julia Press. Thank you to the amazing team at Joe's Pub and the Public Theater. Yes, thank you, Joseph Papp. And finally, we want to thank all of you for coming out tonight on Halloween. Uh, it's going to be crazy out there. There's a parade. Um, and we want to thank you for supporting the show and listening to the show. And we really couldn't do this without you, without your support. So thank you once again. Thanks for coming out.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.